I'm talking about life from my multidimensional, slightly delusional perspective to anyone that can relate or is willing to entertain it or be entertained by it. While my speech will be ranting and rambling to some, it will resound and resonate with many. At this point in my experience, the former doesn't matter as much as the latter. So fuck if you offend it. Let freedom ring. ID say Ron Davis, but I'm more accurately known internationally as R. Sick with it. Indie hip hop writer and recording artist, founding member of indie hip hop group Third Battalion, U.S. military vet, silly native, father, brother, son, human. That was the intro track you just heard. It's titled Sick with it. It's a sample of the catalog. I think it naturally fits with the podcast, right? <laughs> this is the podcast. That's crazy talk. We're all sick with it. I am he. He is me. This is episode two. Death and taxes. Life's guarantees. Yeah, I told y'all before I was going to talk about whatever the fuck I feel. It's got something to do with, you know, that free speech. First Amendment, that type shit. Also got something to do with me trying to figure out what the fuck is this thing called life. Because to be quite honest, I might be having a midlife crisis. But I ain't certain that this is actually the middle point of my life. Lots of questions. But we ain't going to get into that right now. We're going to kind of move along with the topic. But before I get into it, you know, I just want y'all to understand. I mean, I'm not just talking to hear myself think. I think to hear myself think, and I'm not talking about hearing voices either. I'm I'm interested in aspects of life that truly matter. Not a lot of surface topics, but at times I'll cover a few of the current events, things that just might be pop culture phenomena, phenomena, phenomena. But ultimately, I'm at a point where I'm trying to make sense of this 4K world that severely lacks transparency and clarity, and resolution, and ultimately my participation and contribution, past, present, and future. Some will say I'm profane. I'm willing to say I'm poignant, opinionated. I don't mince words or bullshit people, especially myself, and these are just my thoughts in my space in real time. So I'm letting you in on a private convo. But still, it's my hope to help with healing in life. It's part of my process for dealing with life. Thanks for listening. Thanks for contributing. And thanks for sharing. I'm going to take a quick break and we're going to get to it. Levitate. Got to levitate. Elevated thoughts of a better place. Childlike thoughts of a better day. When I'm trying to let go of the bitter pain. 
I'm a levitate, gotta stay above, getting better every day that I'm waking up, putting back together what was tore apart, making fear disappear from a broken heart, gotta levitate. Hey, welcome back to That's Crazy Talk with R, sick with it. This is episode two, Death and Taxes, Lifetime Guarantees. I know I said life guarantees previously. I stand corrected. Lifetime guarantees. That's what I wrote down. Um, That's my track right there, Levitate. It's an excerpt from it. That's where I'm at right now, trying to meditate, trying to elevate above the pressure, above the chaos, above the conflict, if you will, at least internally. Really trying to make sense of the world in which we live. It's, it's changed significantly. Has me thinking a lot about, like, just the realities and the changes. And even made me post a question on Facebook recently. Uh, the question was, in your opinion, hashtag IYO, what's the most difficult aspect of life? Um, I got a couple comments, and to those folks who chimed in, I appreciate it. 3B salute. Uh, of course, my ace boom coon, grandma under surveillance, he chimed in. He said, regression. And I could see that from a broad standpoint, like definitely. Regression, you know, moving backwards, that's difficult. It's a difficult aspect to deal with. I asked him to elaborate, so I'm kind of still waiting on that. Um, but I'm curious to hear more. Uh, then Land Arter, he responded, transitioning from one mind state to another. Salute to my folks, my kinfolk. I, I love that response because I could totally identify with that. Um, then it was Chris Robb, my man Wu, Chris Robinson, West Virginia, one half or one third of Duck City Music. He responded with relating to difficult people. I paraphrase his remarks. <clears throat> Salute to my man out there. Um, then I had my man Andre McMillan, forward movement photography. <clears throat> he said life itself, LOL. And I feel that. <laughs> life itself is fucking difficult. <laughs> when, you, when you take the time to to like really think about it as a whole, it really is. You know? Salute forward movement. Then my man with Terry Felder, aka different hits, three B salute. He he responded with matters of the heart. Oh man, I could relate <laughs> on so many levels, you know. Then you got Josh Strong. Josh, what's up? Salute. Appreciate your contribution. He said mastering yourself. There's a lot of like really, really good comments and remarks and I appreciate everybody for your contributions, please continue to to uh, contribute. I mean, it helps me to really have a broader perspective. I'm not just looking at the world through my paradigm only. When you guys give me your thoughts, it helps me to have a balanced perspective because I'm not the only person experiencing this life. And I know as we get into this do this topic of death and taxes, I'm not the only person who deals with considering that issue. Because, I mean, for me, if I were to answer my own question, what's the most difficult aspect of life? For me, for a long time, it was dealing with the concept of death. And I mean, it might seem silly to some folks, but to me, it was like, I don't know. I just, I had, as a young kid, I used to wonder about a lot of things like with God and religion. And, you know, I was like, well, God's the Father, Jesus, Jesus is the Son. You know, as I was taught, like, well, what, Mother Nature must be the mom. Then you come to find out it ain't, not really don't work that way, really. She, like, not really an offspring at all or something. I don't know. But, I mean, I don't know, man. It's just, you know, when you think about, especially if you have kids and how you try to explain life to them, and it's like, in all actuality and honesty, you haven't quite even figured that shit out yourself. You realize that wherever you are in life, you're still working through things. So, for me, I had to get down to some fundamental stuff, and it was like the death issue, I think, became prevalent between military service as well as a lot of family members, you know, older loved ones passing on 
which for a long time, you know, you figure somebody reached their late 60s, start getting into their 70s, at least from my community, you know that that's like, that's checkout time, if I could put it that way. No disrespect to anybody who's lost a loved one recently. So, you know, it's, it's one of the things you kind of just start anticipating to some degree. But when it happens and you're getting closer to the place where you have to be responsible for the details of funerals and you start realizing you're losing people who are so significant because these are the people who who raised you. It's like, yeah, that can be an extremely difficult matter to really kind of like wrap your mind around. And... I don't know, man. I mean, you know it's coming. No one escapes it. In my youth, I was raised to rely on religion and faith as tools for coping with the reality that most of us fear, man. But, you know, I I think about, like, movie clips and shit. Like, I, when I, I used to think about the concept of death, I mean, I felt like I was, like, kind of like Bill Paxson from, like, Aliens or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's something out there waiting for us. Get out of this chicken shit outfit. Sick with it. <laughs> so, I mean, I know I can't be the only person that kind of connects to those sentiments and those thoughts. I mean, we've heard it before. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. I mean, that's a quotation that's been attributed to Ben Franklin as though he were the one who came up with that saying or that idiom. But, um, did a little digging, a little research, and found that um, he wasn't the only person who thought that way um, during his time and his lifespan. Um, a couple other contemporary Englishmen who um, who actually had similar thoughts and wrote down a similar quote in, you know, their professional works. Um gentleman by the name of Daniel Defoe, um, he wrote a piece called The Political History of the Devil, <clears throat> In 1726, in that piece, he makes a similar uh, quote or remark about death and taxes. Then there's uh, Christopher Bullock, um, who wasn't really a writer. He was actually a comedic actor, English comedic actor. And he did some comedic writing uh, for the parts he would play, I guess. Uh, but there's one particular piece he wrote, The Cobbler of Preston, in either 1716 or 1717. Um, these numbers are years, by the way, for those who not not following. But, you know, there's it's plenty of uh, other writers who during this time period that Benjamin Franklin lived in, let's call him Benny Frank for short, right? During the time that Benny Frank lived in. Um, these people, you know, they all thought this way. These, these accomplished, these educated Englishmen all had this similar ideology about how life kind of pans out. If nothing else is definite, certain to happen, you had to deal with death and you had to deal with taxes. Hmm. I mean, I never met Ben Franklin. I never heard none of his speeches. I never heard of him as in this light in terms of my, you know, formalized education. So I find that interesting that, you know, I heard this quote. This quote is so pertinent to, I don't know, like the, the ideology or, or the attitude of, of American society, at least, if not maybe all English-speaking nations. I don't know. I'm just throwing a dart out there. But, I mean, obviously, for me to be alive in this age, and this is something that he said over like 200-plus years ago, I mean... That's the mindset of the people at that time. And these are the people who formed and created this new country, supposedly this new way of thinking, this new, quote-unquote, democracy, right? 
So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about, you know, why we all got this kind of mindset about death. I mean, obviously, it's, it's we all deal with death. We know death is, is like the other side of the, the, the end of the journey, you know, like we know it's going to happen. We, we might not have a very direct personal experience with it, but we know at least firsthand through people we know personally. We see it enough that it's talked about and shown in TV and things like that. I mean, the shit is real. Death is a real thing. So we can't we can't front on that. We can't ignore that. And it makes me think about life being more precious when I think about the finite value of what we understand as life. Like, you only get one so you understand. Nobody has proof that they've gone to another life. I mean, people might make the argument, but, I mean, in terms of, like, empirical evidence that, you know, we could really, like, I don't know, sit down on, like, this chair that I'm sitting on, I don't know. Like, we we look about, I'm, I'm talking about reality. Forgive me for kind of droning on, but I'm just trying to make a point. Right now, I'm getting to the core of what matters. I told you before, I'm not really dealing with the fluff in this podcast. I think that's what got us to where we are right now. We so caught up in the shit that's not real. It's not it's not fundamental. It's not essential to our existence. Could you could you even conceive the idea of death being fundamental to existing? It's certain that death and taxes are to exist. Well what about life? What about giving? If taxation is taking, what about giving? Is it more likely that our nature is to give? Versus to take, and maybe we've been living in a, 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 a structured setting that kind of reinforces a taking mindset and a taking attitude and mentality. I really had to ask myself those questions, especially in the, in the sense, I mean, come on, my, 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 my ancestors are dying in front of me, which leaves me in a position of having to care for not only myself, but the next generation that's not that to come under me like as a as a relative who cares I understand I have a responsibility to be there to contribute especially for the very young ones I mean that's just like a natural thing and I mean the last time I checked as human beings we supposed to want to be in touch with nature and what is natural well death is natural some forms of it anyway I don't know that's just my thoughts thinking out loud. But back to, to this exploration of this quote that Benjamin Franklin has been attributed to to, to stating or creating, um, getting into this guy, Daniel Defoe. He lived from 1660 to 1731. Now, some people who are, like, really literate academics might know the name already. He was an English trader, writer, journalist, pamphleteer, and spy, huh. and spy, don't let that one just slip by, even though it's at the end of the list. I caught you, Wikipedia, just joking. But I'm saying, this guy here is the famous author of the novel Robinson Crusoe. Now, most of us today, I'm sure, 2018, we, we haven't really been given that as a part of the reading list. Not in the public education system in Philadelphia, anyway. Not in the last 40-plus years, probably. So, I mean, I don't know. Like, people might not really know him as being popular now, but he was very popular at one point in time. He's noted for being one of the earliest proponents for the novel, helping, excuse me, for the novel, the, the writing form, a novel, helping to popularize the form in Britain. He's considered one of the founders of the English, He's he is considered one of the founders of the English novel. Forgive me, that's my notes, and I'm fucking up what I wrote. My bad. Often in legal trouble with authorities, including having done some prison time. Like I said, this dude was a spy, too, so who knows what else he had popping. Sometimes he was a consultant to or for intellectuals and political leaders in, in England. He was considered a prolific and versatile writer with over 300 published works. That's Daniel Defoe. Christopher Bullock was an English actor who lived from 1657 to 1740, a uh, primarily comedic actor. Again, I mentioned he wrote very few uh, comedic parts, uh, but he did about four of them. Woman's Revenge in 1715, Flip, Adventures of Halt 
and out, excuse me, Adventures of Half an Hour, 1716, The Cobbler of Preston, Woman's A Riddle, 1716 or 1717, and then The Traitor in 1718. There was another uh, English author by the name of Edward Edward Ward, who lived from 1667 to 1731. He wrote a piece called Dancing Devils in 1724. He was a humorist, and in his piece, he mentioned nothing certain but death and taxes. So I'm really trying to make this case that, again, this isn't just Benjamin Franklin coming up with some witty shit. And we know Benjamin Franklin has been given um, credit for coming up with a lot of great quotes. I mean, Benjamin Franklin, listen, this is not a shit on Benjamin Franklin podcast, okay? That's not my intention with this. So if anybody who's, like, getting their feathers all ruffled and shit right now, get your shit together because that's not my intention. I'm just talking about these factors that are influential in our our experience that we call life. Like, we talking about somebody who had the opportunity to help create a nation, and the irony is that as he's writing, there, he's, this quote comes out of a letter that he's writing to one of his, uh, let's say, associates, if not friends, you will, um, a Frenchman by the name of Jean-Baptiste. <laughs> I think I might have said that right. My French is a little rusty. But, you know, Jean-Baptiste <laughs> lived from 1720 to 1800. And he was a French physicist. Uh, who actually, like, he came from some really, you know, well-connected, you know, family ties. I mean, this guy was the son of the renowned 18th century Parisian clock slash watchmaker, Julian Lavoie. Lavoie. You know, I thought that shit was Lavoie. That's probably how black people started getting named Leroy, fucking with these French slave owners. Lavoie. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Heroy, yeah, he experimented in electricity research in 1749 and co-created the first electrometer, which makes me think that's probably where Benjamin Franklin became interested in, um, you know, building the association, friendship, business relationship, whatever, with Jean-Baptiste uh, because of their, their similar interest in research with electricity. Uh, Jean-Baptiste Leheroy contributed 130-plus articles to the French Encyclopedia. His brother contributed the, the lion's share of the articles to the French Encyclopedia. Like, this dude was an aristocrat, essentially. Um, as I get a little bit more into the history with Ben Franklin and his life and his, his experience, you know, just the many different facets of service he provided to the, the, the what's now called the United States of America, but at that time was just the British colonies and then the United States of America. I mean, Ben Franklin was a mover and a shaker in his day and time. And some people might say, well, duh, that's why we, like, know who he is. But it's like, did you ever make the connection, though, that, like, Ben Franklin was really, like, he was heavy. How about this? He was heavier than we often consider a thing. Like, he was... Stupid heavy in the finance world. I know I was never taught that in a, in school. It was always like inventor, writer, maybe, you know, scientist, a little political, but they never really even called him a politician in my educational experience. But he was like all those things and then many more. I'm going to get right back to y'all. My dogs are going at it. <laughs> All right, we back. <laughs> we back. Addies, Addies, we back. My my apologies for that abrupt interruption. I guess uh my dogs, you know, those of you who don't know I have dogs, I'm a dog lover. Um I guess they, you know, they saw all that Bill Packs and shit and they got a little excited. Wanted to do the motherfucking Bill Packs and Tribute Challenge and shit. They was trying to get some. <laughs> I don't know. It don't take much for them. It's two boys, you know, two males rather. Hey, boys will be boys, I guess, right? So back to the main man, Benny Frank. Back to this. The only thing that's certain in life is death and taxes. 
I'm certain that if I had not intervened, I'd probably be down one dog right now. Uh, somebody would be dealing with death at this particular moment had I not done what I did. So, you know, it's all good, though. It's part of nature. It happens. They they cool right now. They're actually licking each other right now. It's it's weird. It's, it's very weird. Oh, very, very weird. Anyway, I, I try. I'm trying to understand dog psychology. But, you know, some things I'm seeing the similarities. I just find it interesting that they don't fear death. They don't fear death. They fear pain, but they don't fear death. I'm certain of that. Somebody might say, how you know? Because I talk to them. But that's another conversation in another episode. Back to Benny Frank, right? Um, I mean, my man, they, they, they attribute him as being the person who came up with this idiom. Um, let's define idiom. It's a group of words established by usage as having meaning not deducible from the words individually. An example would be it's raining cats and dogs. You know, break it down. You look up in the sky. It's precipitating. I promise you it won't be of the feline and canine uh, nature. It, it's going to be liquid. Um, that's an idiom. It's, it's a saying you can't take a face value, but it's like a meaning. So you got to kind of like understand what are they getting at. So... I get the sense that Ben Franklin, yeah, he did kind of literally mean death and taxes, but he probably was kind of trying to say something else there too. Um, but, you know, we can explore that. That's kind of what I'm, that's the point of this episode, right? So the death and taxes idiom quote, as explained by the free, dex, uh, free dictionary .com, uh states that two things generally regarded as certain to happen, inevitable or unavoidable impossible to avoid. Uh, death is defined as being the end of a of life of a person or organism, the state or condition of being dead, the permanent ending of vital processes in a cell or tissue. I think we kind of get death. It's kind of, I mean, you'd have to be very, very young to not understand the whole concept of this death thing. Forgive me for really, you know, nailing it in, but I'm going to break it down a little bit. So, in my opinion, I think that it's easy to understand you know, the concept of death being like certain, but I really kind of was confused and perplexed about this taxation thing. Why Why is taxation like certain? Like, I know I've never ran a country, never constructed or, or put a country together, but I just, I kind of like naively would like to think that people can live and get along without, you know, taxation, right? But, you know, I've heard the arguments about, you know, taxes paid for, Blah 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 blah. The streets, military, etc. Fire. Blah blah blah. I mean, I don't want to really get into splitting hairs on how money should be spent in in the municipal services, federal, state, whatever level level. But I just right now the taxation thing. I mean, people work hard as fuck for their money, and it's like we know that there were tax cuts just recently given to the quote-unquote rich, the wealthy, those who already have a lot of fucking financial assets. So it makes me curious why they can't do it a little bit less, especially considering the fact that they rely on the people who are getting taxed the heaviest to get the shit that they got. I mean, that's the way I'm breaking it down in my head. Like, why taxation got to happen? What's going on in your world, Ben Benny Frank? Why you why you telling your main man over your main man pots and pans over in France? Listen, I'm excited and I'm happy about what we've accomplished over here, putting together this constitution, the United States of America, let freedom ring. But you know, ain't nothing perfect. Anything can happen. You know, death and taxes. The fuck? You you a fucking you a boss, Ben? you talking about I thought that was the point of creating a nation so that it could rival and compete with these other nations and empires of that time period I don't know it just was fucking with me so I started looking at that and it says taxation or taxes rather compulsory contribution to state revenue levied by the government on workers incomes and business profits and or added to the cost of some goods, services, and transactions. Now, in this particular episode, I'm not going to get too deep into the, to that aspect, but I just wanted to touch on that to set it up for the next one. But see, in my breakdown and comparison, the certainty of death is more certain 
than the certainty of taxation or taxes. And as I understand the word certainty broken down, defined as the quality of being reliably true, a fact that is absolutely true, or event guaranteed to occur. So in my mind, it's like, well, yeah, death is guaranteed to occur, but is taxation? Looking at some other things in Webster's Dictionary, got a little deeper. It says certainty is connected to certitude, which is connected to conviction. They're all synonyms. And then it says that certainty and certitude are very close, that certainty may stress the existence of objective proof, while certitude may emphasize a faith in something not needing or not capable of proof. Conviction applies especially to belief, strongly held by an individual. Essentially, the idiom is more accurately explaining the quality or state of being sure versus something that is sure. I know y'all like, what in the hell? All this fucking words. I don't know. Maybe this hair splitting is important. Because the beginning part is like, what's really important? Like, what really matters? Like, why do we live these natural lives so deeply tied in this convoluted bullshit that come from like, this is 2018. This this is like written by Webster himself probably in the 1600s. Like, why are we 400 years behind, but we think of ourselves as advanced because we got computers and shit? Cars that run off of batteries and solar power. Why is it so many of us who are doing all right? We're comfortable as a motherfucker in comparison to other people who aren't. Why are we ignoring what the fuck is going on in the world? Like the garbage everywhere. Homelessness in abundance. Large populations of people like being totally like wiped out and and forced to leave their native lands, even in 2018, like it's some shit you would see in a movie or read in a history book. Death and taxes. Goddamn right, death is fucking in inevitable. But this taxation shit, I would like to think that as human beings, we could say, hold up, let's try to make everybody's life on this motherfucking whatever it is more, like, easier. You know what I'm saying? Teamwork make the dream work. If we all work together, we can all have more together. Like, I don't even understand the concept. Somebody said to me the other day, they asked me, do you think that the world is overpopulated? I said, what world? This one? Are you fucking kidding me? I mean, I ain't gonna lie. I hate how congested the cities are. But that said... You go right outside the city limit, it's fucking nature. Every fucking where. I mean, I've done a little digging. You come to find out what you've been taught in school is just so short of what is really true. The continent of Africa, for example, is a gazillion times bigger than what they will lead us to believe. I'm not even going to talk about that today, but that's relevant because it's like, well, if death and taxes are certain and if the motherfuckers that are founding this new nation and they call it it's democracy and it's liberty and it's justice for all, what the fuck is their definitions of justice and liberty for all? Yes, I use a lot of profanity. I told you, some people are going to consider, I'm, consider me profane. I, I'm not offended by that. I'm okay with that. I didn't make up the motherfucking word. I just use them pretty fucking well. You understand what I'm getting at. You feel my motherfucking emotions. Like, this shit is it's fucking lunacy to me. Back to my main man, Benny Frank. We know that death is a larger and more impending guarantee. We can't escape death, but taxes? What's the issue, really? It makes me think that it's really a matter of mind state. Give me a second. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna break that down a little bit more. Yeah. 
Yeah, I had to double check real quick. And Titan, he looking at Choo Choo like, yeah, I'm about to grease this rat son of a bitch. You, you lucky you didn't, you didn't in the, he lucky right over there, man. I'll, I'll fuck you up, pussy. That's how they deal with each other. And then they be licking each other. I said, this shit is weird. I don't know. But hey, as long as there's no blood, no foul, <laughs> back to Benny Frank, you know what I'm saying? It's all about the Benjamins. We talking about the mind state of Benny Frank. One of the most influential personalities slash people in the, the fabric of what it is to be American. That man face is pretty much well known all out, all throughout this country. And, I mean, shit, he represents a lot of what this country is still doing to this day. And out of all the stuff he had to say to his main man, Jean-Baptiste Leroy, you know what I'm saying? He, he talking that shit like, listen, man, with everything we just accomplished, I mean, I'm hopeful. We, we done done some good shit, but, you know, all this shit could be subdued or restrained by death, you know, everybody in the motherfucking over offices, you know what I mean, all, the, all those big wigs croak simultaneously, of course, that wasn't likely to happen, some crazy shit, you know what I'm saying, but the taxation issue, and, and you know, it made me wonder, what was the deal with taxes with Ben Franklin, like, why was he, like, talking that shit, right, he had a lot of violent points in his lifetime, I mean, some of the quotes that he had, listen, check out a couple of them, lost time is never found again, that's real shit. I mean, that's a dope-ass quote. You should keep that in mind. Another one. It's easier to prevent bad habits than to break them. Now, I hate to believe that he was the only person that ever thought of that shit. I mean, he was born in the year, what, 1706. So with a lot of people that lived before him, and he was the first one to think of that shit? I hope not, but the first one to be quoted for it, right? All right, salute. And then he got another one. Um, beware of little expenses. Small leaks sink large ships. I might have paraphrased it. But, I mean, come on. That's some, like, you growing up poor, you kind of learn that shit fast, hopefully. A lot of people don't, I guess. I don't know. But here's another one, right? You may delay, but time will not. Mm. Mm. That's some Liberty Bell shit right there. That shit should be ringing in your head right there. You may delay, but time will not. You see what I did right there, Liberty Bell? The Liberty Bell is right there with the Ben Franklin with the clock. Oh, never mind. Y'all ain't get that. He also said honesty is the best policy. I would like to add to that, but it isn't the only policy. And I'd also like to add to that, naturally, it has the most expensive premium. So, but it's, yeah, I think honesty is the best policy. Um, He had another one that was pretty heavy. He said, those who would give up essential liberty for temporary safety deserve neither so he's pretty profound with that one i think because his attitude now in this particular quote is like talking about people's safety and how they should live and i think that's just real interesting because i think whenever we decide we want to live in a societal setting we automatically kind of co-sign to that like giving up essential safety thing. Now, I'm not saying I, I'm I'm a favor of that, in favor of that, but I'm just saying I think there's there's the there's the relationship is a give and take, you know, so I kind of hear it, but I think ultimately that was kind of like also inspired with the events of the times. You're talking about, again, the English colonies, the, Ameri the United States, this is the British. They're all Britons. They're all British. They're all from those roots, even if they were born here in the in the colonies, they came from that British blood. And when you think about the blood situation, there was a lot of bad blood, especially towards the latter end of Ben Franklin's lifetime, because, you know, that was the point in which the colonies was like, fuck this. Fuck you, UK, Britain, whatever you want to call, fuck you all. Would put your fucking tea in the fucking harbor, fuck you too, and the fucking British boats just floated over on, and your fucking red coats too, fuck them all. Like that was how they was feeling. You know what I'm saying? Like they they had enough. The, the taxation was oppressive. 
extremely so. And so, again, I mean, here are people who have had this experience that does make that question linger. Why weren't they more fair in the way they established things? I personally have my own kind of uh, hypothesis or theory. I think a lot of it comes from just the fact that as human beings, like, we really try to divorce ourselves from the, the aspect of, like, we're social animals. We're social creatures. Like, we do a lot more based on... We live our lives a lot more based on our, based out of like our experience and social dynamics than we do out of our intellect. Like I'm just gonna say that as a statement of what I believe and think. Like it might change, but I I think it's gonna take a lot to change it. Um, it just is what it is, and I think even though some aspects of what the founding fathers of the United States of America were aspiring to do may have been noble, I think that they they did, in a lot of ways, create a facsimile, a, a Xerox almost, of what they were trying to escape from. They just did it a little bit more cleverly. So maybe it was, wasn't just a Xerox. Maybe they added some motherfucking, you know, partially to the motherfucking entree. They they dressed it up, you know what I'm saying? And it's been working pretty successfully for them and their, you know, progeny, you know, to this day. Um, but I think the reality of it is, it's been at a great expense, and the question is, what is that expense? Because it's like, all right, well, even the Bible says, what does it gain? What does it profit a man to gain the world but lose his soul? And I really believe that we see in the evidence of those who are aspiring to have so much in terms of material wealth and also power and influence over the production of those things that we all desire to rely upon and might even probably should be all relying on, especially with the current condition of this, this environment we live in. Like, like where's the equity? Where's the justice for all? Where's the liberty for all? Why is the liberty, like, in different, it's, like, parceled out in different degrees? Why is so many people just cool with it? Like, that's just the way things work. That's the way it's always been. Like, even history teaches it hasn't always been that way. For those of us who, you know, who, who have had the experience of slaving away at a nine-to-five or some form of a, you know, traditional, conventional work employment, uh, you know, experience, it's like the shit becomes like a slow death. Like... Nobody really wants to do it, but you kind of feel like, all right, this is all I've figured out for the time being. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who say, well, that's your your fault for being lazy or ignorant and not getting the knowledge to change the situation. And, hey, there's some truth to that. I won't negate that. But I think that to believe that, you know, people who are in, let's say, the lower rungs of society are there just because of their sloth or their lack of work ethic, I think that's a bunch of bullshit. It takes a lot of fucking work to survive. Um, I just think that everybody's attitude is really what's fucking the world up, really, because people's attitude ain't to be humane anymore. It's to be dominators, to be fucking something other than human. Motherfuckers acting like that shit is the motherfucking plague. Like, oh, shit, that nigga said he a human. Oh, shit, get away from him. You might catch that. But it's like we all got to deal with death. And ain't that like the end of the human journey? Like are we really that distracted by the the cool gadgets that some of us might have access to? Or are we really that distracted by all the people that we idolize and say, oh, shit, they got all the cool gadgets I wish I had access to? Like what the fuck is that cool-ass gadget going to do for your dead-ass courts? What is that cool-ass gadget going to do for your offspring or your or your your loved ones when you're not there to do what you would normally do for them, especially in their times of need. Like what really matters. So as you put in this country together, Benny Frank, you and your homies, your cohorts, your uh, accomplices, like I'm curious, like death and taxes, why not do something different with the whole taxing taxation process? But you you are also a beneficiary, right? Again, I'm not shitting on my main man. He did some real dope shit. It's kind of cool. Awesome blueprints, you know what I mean? Making bells and fucking pots and fucking, not pots, what was it? 
the the, the, uh, the fucking cast iron stove or whatever he made. Like, you know what I mean? Fucking with kites and electric storms. When I was a kid, they told us don't do that shit. You get electrocuted. But he must have knew something my people didn't know. But what's new? Especially when you consider the history of my people. By the way, I found out that he had slaves and shit at one point in his history. Ben Franklin, a motherfucking slave owner. I never learned that in public school. I did also learn that he let him go. Because as he got older, he ain't want nothing to do with slavery, and he write, he wrote some like abolitionist type shit, according to what this, these sources said. You know, you know, can't paint one of the founding fathers as being like human and shit. I will though, because he was a human. He was hustling. He said, "Yo, this slavery shit is working for me right now." And then when that shit wasn't working for him, whether it started in his heart or in his motherfucking pocketbook, I really don't know. I'm not Ben Franklin. I wasn't there, but I know this. The man was a maneuverer. <laughs> maneuverer. He was a mover and a fucking shaker. I mean, I'm going to get into his personal life a little bit later, but I just want to get into the professional stuff. I mean, when we talk about his mind state, his mind state was oriented in, a, in the experiences of his life. He spent a significant portion of his life influencing and shaping the world or nation rather I should say that we live in today the United States of America he's possibly the most influential figure in the formation of these United States of America and he was thoroughly institutionalized and internationally connected and probably most importantly he was particularly optimistic about the future of the country but he just finished that statement in his letter with the only thing that's certain in terms of the outcome is, you know, we know that there's death, we know there's taxes. Now, I thought it was interesting that him being a man of such great prestige and affluence, and influence either, even, he was human. He had fears and concerns just like anybody else has. And it made me question what Benny Frank's experiences taught him to have fear. Death? Was it because by the time he wrote this letter, it was about 1780-something. He died in 1790, so he was close to the end of his life. Who knows if he really knew, but, I mean, he was definitely in his 80s when he wrote this letter. Was was that why death was on his mind? Or was it just his whole conglomerate of 80 years of experience that had him kind of more oriented and is that why he he, he dovetailed it with death, death and taxes? <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me get a little agua pura. A little water. Was it like was his was his influence everything he had experienced that that kind of really had him thinking about? Hey, listen, we put a great plan together for leading this group of new, you know, colonies into a nation state, a unified nation state. We put this plan together, and we feel like it's going to work. But I've seen what's affecting these colonies firsthand on a governmental level, on a financial level, on a socioeconomic level, if you will. Well, how would he know that? We don't think about it. Ben Franklin was intricately intricately involved in the world of uh, banking and finance. One of his, you know, in his in his career, in his professional life, he printed paper money for three of the colonies, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey. From the years 1729 to 1764, that's about 33 years, 35 years or so, he was gaining experience as a, Money printer. Now, again, all the stuff I heard taught about what Ben Franklin did, I, I don't recollect being taught that he he printed money. I do remember him being a printer, newspaper, printing, press-related work, but money printer? Like, it's messing with my mind as an adult because I'm thinking, hold up. He was able to make his own money, not only his own money, but he made money for the whole state. Oh, okay, he was a contractor. He had a, a, a government contract. That's heavy. He connected. Okay. All right. And when you hear the quantities that he printed, now dig the move. What type of currency are they using? 
They wasn't using American dollars. There was no America yet. So they printing pounds and operating with pounds for currency in this new territory. Of course, at the time, they hadn't they hadn't revolted yet. When he first started printing in 1729 through 1764, they were still the colonies. But they're using pounds. And they started, they, he's getting his experience making, it said he printed in Pennsylvania 770,000 pounds for Pennsylvania, 86,000 pounds for Delaware, that was in the year 1734, and then 50,000 pounds for New Jersey in the year 1737. He received 100 pounds for printing uh, 40,000 pounds for Pennsylvania in the year 1731. So he was getting compensated for this work, and he was getting recognized not just in the colony of Pennsylvania, but also in the colonies around and I mean, that along with the other things he was doing in terms of writing publications, uh, governmental work, he represented both Pennsylvania and then even a few other colonies in international affairs as it related to resolving currency currency issues because it was like the currency exchange issue where the colonies were trying to do business with the British Empire. The British Empire were kind of like shorting the colonies on the trade, if not just straight, not even accepting the currency in some cases. So a lot of times Ben Franklin would be called on to go over to London or even for a period of time in his career, he actually served in official capacity, like working out those issues so that the currency could be accepted and transactions could be made. Um, I mean, Benny Frank was heavy. You're talking like John Gotti heavy, like Man, probably heavier than that. Like he, he's the Godfather. <laughs> he is the Godfather. Like Benny Frank was that boy. We often think like George Washington because he was the first president. I mean, George Washington was the first president. He was a military, you know, uh, a man. You know, it'd be similar. Like I don't know. You take any of the great military leaders of today and putting them in the presidency, you know, but that doesn't necessarily make them a politician. That doesn't necessarily make them connected in the aristocrat or or the academic world. I mean, Benny Frank was a heavy hitter across the boards. And then when you think about his experience, like, he was a moneymaker. Like, he literally made money. He also served as a Pennsylvania assemblyman and representative abroad. Benny Frank spent from the year 1750 to 1787, it was about 40 years, involved with macro and microeconomic issues. His ideas were particularly influential in the colonies, but he was constantly under fire from the British oversight and regulation enforcement. Now, I, I had to assume Benny Frank was a quite practical type dude, based off those quotes and, you know, different things, you know, that I saw. Um I think, you know, it was clear to him and a lot of the colonists that, you know, they were footing the bill for the Seven Years' War, if not more. You know, I mean, the taxation, like the Stamp Act and things of that nature, it was just like, yo, y'all over there, y'all want to feel protected, y'all want us to send our ships, our troops, et cetera. Y'all ain't nothing more than a factory for bringing that gold and bringing them goods back over here to the Queen. You heard? Stop playing games. Y'all not going to do your own thing. You know, so he knew that was the circumstances. And on top of that, I mean, just mentioned the Seven Years' War. You know, the British literally gave the French that, that ass. They they whooped that ass. They gave them, they spanked that ass, seriously. Like, the French was like, we good, we done. I mean, they didn't conquer France, but the French was like, all right, y'all got that shit. Go ahead, y'all got it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's all y'all. We might keep a little bit of that shit up in Canada, but y'all got the rest of that shit. You know what I'm saying? You know, so Benny Frank and them knew, like, if if the British government would do that, if the, the monarchy would do that to the French, of course, they, they'd come spank that colonial ass. You know what I'm saying? They, they didn't want to put them in that position. You know what I'm saying? But at the same token, it's like they took the courage to say, fuck it, we're going to stand up to the British because we feel as though we got in an advantage on them as far as the terrain and et cetera, et cetera. You know, plus we got good relationships with the French, wink, wink, Jean-Baptiste, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, come on, 
Ben Franklin, while the motherfucking revolution is going down, he ain't in London. He over in fucking France as a, as a, a U.S. diplomat. You know what I'm saying? Like, the, the shit is crazy how heavy it was for him. And, you know, I don't know. It, maybe for, for Ben Franklin, death and taxes were two separate sharp edges on the same long handle sword. With menacingly looming, excuse me, menacingly, ugh, menacingly, I can't even say the fucking word. I wrote it, I swear. Menacingly looming in the hand of the Grim Reaper known as the British Empire. See, I'll be writing that fly shit. I wanted to share it with y'all. <laughs> but to me, the puzzle still seems, seems incomplete. Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe America's, one of America's founders has really just been both misquoted and misunderstood. Maybe, uh, you know, how public education has taught that liberty and justice for all as a narrative for the motivation for the American Revolution, um, that really, really wasn't the case. Maybe it was the case that the founders seen an opportunity that was economic in nature to capitalize on a similar type of wealth or future that they thought as though their, you know, European counterparts were dominating. And I will argue that that definitely was the case. If I'm right, that's, I mean, I think I'm right. But, yeah, I mean, if I'm right, then I, I have every reason to think so, right? <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but it is what it is. Like, Ben Franklin was clear that, all right, I'm going to die at some point, and everything I'm doing in life is, is the stuff that I want to do. He's making these connections. I mean, he's a real dude. He's living his life. Like, I don't want to make it seem like Ben Franklin wasn't human. I don't even want to make it seem like anything he did was completely with ill intent. But at the same token, like, if we're going to give history, let, let's paint the picture of him as a human being. I mean, like I mentioned in the previous episode, like, we're all... As human beings, like, we, we're, we're a product of both the cause and effect in our environment. Life is both action and reaction to the origins that precede our awareness and consciousness. And these origins impact and influence our choices and how they're made, et cetera. So, you know, when you think about what externalities might have been a part of Benny Frank's life, I mean, we don't even realize a lot of it. He arrived in Philadelphia. He wasn't a Philadelphia native. He arrived in Philadelphia excuse me, in Philly at age 17. That was in 1723. But he was a runaway from Boston, Massachusetts, which was where he was born in 1706. He had ran away from an apprenticeship with his brother, who was a printer, and who founded the first independent newspaper in the British colony. Like, come on, like, this is the 1700s. If people are living a more agrarian lifestyle and off the land. Like, he didn't have no phone call to call up anybody, so what made him think, I'm just going to go to Philadelphia? He probably had a little connection. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, of course, we know Philadelphia was a major player in, you know, the establishment of this country, but in the British colonies, it was kind of like the Wild West before the Wild West. Like, those who were wealthy were wealthy because they had some wealth inheritance. And here you got Benny Frank at age 17. He ran away from his home, and he ran away from an apprenticeship that he had been doing since he was 12. So he had learned the art and the craft of being a printer since he was a young, young, basically what we consider a child today. And his brother founded the first independent newspaper in the entire 13 colonies. I heard it was 12 before they actually recognized, I think, Georgia as a colony. But either way, I mean, come on, Ben Franklin's brother was a boss, too. I don't know. That being said, he gets to Philly. He finds work within a few months. He starts networking, makes connection. He meets the uh, PA governor at that time, Sir William Keith. Okay. Um. This dude, Sir William Keith, he's an asshole. <laughs> he tells Ben Franklin, hey, listen, why don't you go to London? I'm going to um, 
set you up with some credit, you know, hook you up, you go over there and get us some of this printing uh, equipment so that way we could, you know, start another printing press for the state, for PA. So Ben Franklin, like, yeah, I like that idea. I'm on it. He goes over, I guess, off the money that the governor provides him with, but he get over to London, and then he can't get in contact with the governor to get back. Like, the governor, like, disappeared off the face of the map and shit. So May May gets stuck over there. Benny Frank stuck in London for, like, a year with his fiance or girlfriend back home waiting to hear from him, hoping he's going to come back. He sends her, like, one letter saying, yeah, I'll be back when I get back. Kind of fucked up right now. From what I understand, that's how it went, right? So then, meanwhile, you know, I mean, he over there trying to find a place to live. He finds a place. He finds a printer to work for over there. Take him about a year to save up his money. But even then, he still got to get a loan, you know, to come back to, to to the colonies, right? And in the meantime, when he come back to the colonies, he comes back to find out that his fiance married some other dude while, you know, he was gone because she ain't know when he was coming back. Not to mention, her mom didn't really want her marrying Benny Frank in the first place. So I guess she figured out the perfect time to go ahead and marry this other jerk. They get aboard a dowry. The boy got a bunch of debts. He takes the dowry and runs to the West Indies. So now he leaves the girl stranded behind. This is Ben Franklin's wife-to-be, Deborah Reed, I believe was her name. I mean, Ben Franklin lived a particularly taxing life. If I would just make an outside-looking-in analysis, I mean, he lived a real life. He lived a real fucking life. You know, running away from that apprenticeship, that made him a fugitive. I'm not sure if he knew that or not, but I would like to think that his smart-ass did. You know, he's one of them smart motherfuckers. He knew. He had an idea. You know what I'm saying? They probably had a little wanted posters looking for Ben Frank. You seen this motherfucker? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But no, that's just me. Whatever. But um, the, the, the interesting other notes I found out in 1731, he became a Mason. He was initiated into the local Masonic Lodge. Uh, and at that time, he was in Philadelphia. 1734, he became a Grand Master. Um, and there's certain, you know, sources that attribute a lot of his professional success to his elevation within the uh the Masonic, you know, uh brotherhood. I mean, hey, if so, so be it, but you know, it doesn't take away from what he has actually done and again, none of us was really there, so we can only kinda go off of what we're gonna trust, but let's give him some kind of credit, you know. All right, let's give him some kind of credit. He did something. Um I'm willing to accept the fact that he probably did most of the shit, you know, maybe not all by itself. There's certain things they refer to in the research about running the printing press with different partners. And, you know, he worked for different people at different stages in his life. But in terms of the totality of his experience, it just really appeared to me that, you know, it was really a taxing experience. And so I guess in some ways after 80 years of a lot of different types of shit and at the end of your life, you actually being relied on to help create an entirely new, like, nation to rival, like I said, the nations from which you came from or your people came from. I mean, shit, death and taxes. Okay. Maybe taxes. Maybe they're not avoidable. I don't know. I just, I have a few different thoughts on that, and, and, you know, I'm going to let y'all go. I ain't going to hold y'all much longer. I appreciate y'all plugging in, but stay tuned for these fools and ideas. Yeah, so you heard it. That's pretty much the uh, cap on the history lesson for the day. Um, But just understanding here I am in 2018, looking back at life and preparing for what's left of life, and I'm thinking, damn, like, death and taxes is all I got to look forward to, huh? Guarantees everything else is a motherfucking crap shot. Thanks, Benny Frank. Appreciate the heads up. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> I can relate. I've had my fair share of uh, taxing experiences, and I anticipate quite a few of them. I'm only about halfway through them. <laughs> so maybe I'm at that midlife point in those aspects of life. But, I mean, as a whole, I feel like I got a lot of a lot of shit left to do. 
You know what I mean? And I actually, I'm excited about it to some extent. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm learning how to appreciate life. Because, I mean, in terms of figuring out a point, I've kind of arrived at the, the the destination that, you know, life is worth living. Like, that's the point. The point of life is to live. I think I'm quoting grammar, G-U-S, with that one. But the point of life is to live. And it's like, you know, I don't know. I think it's just crazy as shit to let anybody else tell you, like, you know, what your your point or your purpose in life should be, you know. But then there's a part of me that says, well, for those of us who really are human, like, because who knows, maybe everybody that's walking around in flesh ain't human. I don't know. Is that possible? I don't know. Is that another episode? Might be. But I know this, for those of us who identify as human, and for those of us who have intentions of living on a planet that doesn't have aliens or non-human, humanoid-type beings, um, death is guaranteed motherfucking tea. And guess what? Every day you're getting closer to that shit. So if you were like me, like how I was, and hadn't dealt with that, man, deal with that shit. I think that would actually be a great place to start with gaining a new perspective on all that is positive that's preparing to come to you. Because, again, it's a part of life. Like, I mean, shit, we all say it. Well, I never asked to be here. Fuck it. Nobody asked to be here, which is all the more reason why... We got to really reconsider why we blame some people for the issues, the things in life we don't like, but we let other people get away scot-free with shit. We punish the fuck out of some human beings and let other human beings get away scot-motherfucking-free. That shit just ain't right. There's just nothing right about that shit at all. But, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's just my thoughts and that's just me talking that crazy talk. Manual. Oh, yeah, sure.